0: Welcome to the first Lead On podcast of 2018. I'm Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary. and It's my pleasure to lead this podcast each week to talk about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Each week on the podcast, I talk about uh, pressing problems or opportunities uh, that ministry leaders have to advance the cause of Jesus Christ and to expand the gospel's influence around the world. As we start the new year, one of the pressing challenges that every ministry faces is finding enough resources, both financial and human, uh, to get the job done. Now, I've spoken about financial resources uh, last month in the podcast, so today I want to start the new year by focusing on what it means to develop leaders in churches and ministry organizations. Every ministry needs more leaders. And so the question is, where do those leaders come from? Uh, what are some biblical models of how to develop those leaders? And then, uh, what are some personal convictions that you might have as a leader to drive you toward developing other leaders to share the load in your church or organization? Well, let's start by talking about this first question Where do leaders come from? When I ask this question in a classroom or at a conference, The answer is usually something like this, well, leaders come from uh, your church, or leaders come from uh, sitting in the seats or sitting in the pews, or, well, leaders come from the lower levels of your organization as they emerge. That's in some ways a partially right answer, but honestly, it's an answer that uh, truncates the leadership development process and really uh, reveals how little we understand about where future Christian leaders will come from. So let me propose this answer. For future Christian leaders, come from among the unsaved or the lost in your community. Now if you can imagine with me uh, a giant triangle for just a moment, at the tip of the triangle, I want you to imagine the word leaders. And then next down on the triangle, as it gets larger, uh, the word convert or the word uh, disciples. And then a little farther down on the triangle, as it gets larger, the word converts. And then the very base of the triangle is the word unsaved or lost or non-Christians. You see, every Christian leader started out as a non-Christian. They started out as an unsaved person who would not yet heard the gospel. And when they came to faith in Jesus Christ, they were discipled enough that their that they became known not just as a convert, but as a disciple or as a follower. And then those disciples, some of them, received even more training and guidance and in some cases had more natural ability that God had given them, and they emerged as leaders. And so the, the pyramid or the triangle of leadership development is this. The first step is to share the gospel in the unsaved community. And that produces converts. The next step is to train those converts or stabilize those converts to the point that they become be- become followers, or as the Bible calls them, disciples. Then you continue that disciple-making process over time as some of those disciples emerge as leaders. And then you do the sharpening work of producing leaders that can repeat the process. Now this is... Um, so vital in every ministry area but it's particularly important of course in church planting and quite frankly it's where I really learned this lesson most profoundly while I was a church planter. When I went to Oregon to plant the church in 1989 uh, there were a few Christians that wanted to help us plant the church but mostly we went into the community with the gospel, led people to faith in Jesus Christ and started training them uh, to be leaders in our new church. There were a number of men and women that came along in those first few weeks uh, that became leaders for us. In fact, I recently had the opportunity to preach back at the same church. Now, gosh, uh, almost 30 years later. And one of the men that was in the congregation uh, that day came up and shared some time with me. was the first non-Christian who came to visit our church in 1989. Uh, He came... He later became a Christian, he was moved through a discipleship process, and then started taking on leadership responsibilities, even back in the early days, and has continued faithfully with the Lord over these now three decades. How did he become a Christian leader? He became a leader because he was a convert, excuse me, he was a lost person who became a convert, who became a disciple, who became a leader. And so I wanna challenge you to not just think about developing leaders in your ministry organization as taking the already converted and helping them to become disciples and helping them to become leaders. But I want you to think about expanding the leadership base of your organization by reaching more and more people with the gospel and out of that reaching movement will come the leaders that you need. It certainly was that way for us as a church plant And it's that way today for healthy churches who continually reach more people, train them, raise them up, and place them in leadership responsibilities. I would also add that this is a concern of mine as it relates to the seminary here at Gateway and not just our school but seminaries broadly. Uh, The baptismal rate in the Southern Baptist Convention has been declining now for a number of years. And because it continues to decline, eventually there's going to be fewer and fewer people who are being discipled and who can move into leadership. And so it really alarms me when the baptismal rate is going down because I know eventually that's going to cause seminary enrollment uh, to struggle. In fact, people sometimes ask me, well, how's enrollment? And they are, and I'll say, well, you know, I'll answer that question if I can ask you a couple of questions. And they agree to it, so I'll answer their question. Then I'll ask them these questions first how many young people are you baptizing? And second, how many of those young people that you're baptizing are you regularly extending a call to a- and asking them to respond to God's initiative and enter Christian ministry? Baptism and calling are important in the church for developing leaders in that location uh, and in that setting, but they're also important for developing leaders for the global Christian community and sending people to seminary. Uh, We're not going to have more students if we don't have more converts. So where do leaders come from? They come from among the unsaved in our communities. We must continually be reaching people, seeing the unsaved become converts, the converts become disciples, and then the disciples become developed leaders. Well, uh, there's a great biblical model for how this can develop, and that's the model of the church at Antioch. Now, I've been studying this church for many years. In fact, I recently did some combing through my old sermon files, and I discovered that my first sermon on the church at Antioch was actually preached in 1987. So now for 30-plus years, I've been studying this church. I wrote a book about it called The Case for Antioch, in which I made the case that Antioch was the most significant church in the New Testament world and really the model church for what uh, ministry must be like today. Well, the church in Antioch was a model for leadership development. Uh, the stories found in Acts chapters 11, 13, 15, and a little bit in Galatians chapter 2. But I'll focus today just on the Acts passages. Now, let me give you a summary of what happened, and if you have your Bible nearby, you might want to take a look with me at Acts chapter 11, or certainly uh, if you're driving or otherwise uh, listening to the podcast, maybe you'll take a look at this later and do some Bible study for yourself. First of all, the church at Antioch started in Acts chapter 11 verses 19 through 21 almost entirely by conversion growth. Now this is very significant in considering where leaders come from and this principle I've laid out about leaders coming from the unsaved community. The church at Antioch had a few Christians who'd been scattered because of the persecution of Stephen that arrived in Antioch and started preaching the gospel. Now, at the time they arrived, there were no Christians in Antioch, none. And Antioch was a large city, perhaps six to 800,000. It was a cosmopolitan city with people from various nations and peoples of the world. Uh, it was a, a prosperous city. It was a seaport. It was a, governance, a center of governance. So there was a lot about this city that made it what we would describe today as secular. The gospel arrived, and people started coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's so important to understand that all of the future leaders that, uh, excuse me, almost all of the future leaders that are mentioned in Antioch and the influence that Antioch was able to have not only in Antioch but also later in Jerusalem, all of that was accomplished by people who came from Uh, the the unsaved community. And so the church at Antioch started almost entirely by conversion growth. Then Barnabas arrived from Jerusalem and launched a teaching ministry. Now Barnabas was already a Christian. And so when he arrived, he had been sent by the church at Jerusalem, not as an encourager, although he later became that, but he actually came as an inquisitor. He came to check out this nation movement of Christians who were claiming that it was possible to come to faith in Jesus or come to a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith alone, without circumcision. And so Paul, or excuse me, Barnabas came to check out this movement. Now when he arrived, he he understood that this really was a movement that was from God, and so he made the decision to go to Tarsus and fetch Paul back to join the teaching team. Now, of course, Paul had already become a Christian, but was a young, younger Christian and certainly had not yet emerged in leadership. So <clears throat> Barnabas makes the 90-mile walk one way down to Tarsus, finds Paul, brings him back, and puts him on the teaching team. And then another aspect of the teaching team is found in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. A man named Agabus came down from Jerusalem to join the teaching ministry. He was invited to be a guest speaker. Now when you turn over to Acts chapter 13, you see that there are several leaders mentioned who are called pastors and teachers at the church at Antioch. Um, Those uh, included Paul and Barnabas, but there's also three men mentioned who emerged for the first time. And it's my contention that these three men uh, were a part of that conversion movement in Antioch that saw those early Christians coming to faith. And very quickly, uh, they were being placed into leadership roles. And then you can also find later in Acts chapter 15 that Judas and Silas were from Jew- Jerusalem. And when they made the trip to Antioch, they were invited to stand up and speak or preach or teach. Well, this is an overview of the teaching ministry at antioch first it started with people coming to faith in jesus christ in a community where there were no christians it was facilitated by some outside leaders like paul and barnabas who came in and spurred the movement along but very quickly Very quickly, the teaching ministry, the disciple-making ministry, if you will, resulted in leaders emerging, and those first leaders are mentioned in Acts chapter 13. Now, there's always some outside help that's available. Judas and Silas came and did some preaching and teaching, and so we see this kind of mix. But I want you to understand that the outside leaders were not the only leaders in Antioch. They were more catalytic leaders who prompted these who'd been led to faith in Christ to grow up and start Providing leadership as well. Now, the teaching ministry at Antioch had a profound impact. Um, there was in Acts chapter eleven, verse twenty-four, continued evangelistic results because of the teaching ministry, which resulted in even uh, in an expansion of personal witnessing. That's found in Acts eleven twenty-six, as the believers there in Antioch were known as Christians for the first time. But there's even more evidence of the, real, the, the results of this teaching ministry. Uh, the meaning of the gospel, for example, was confirmed, and Antioch was the place where the gospel was, pro- was broadly preached among the Gentiles. And so uh, there was conflict about this, but the Antioch uh, church sent a delegation to Jerusalem. And in Acts 15 we see that once and for all the nature of the gospel was determined to not include any work of man, including even circumcision. And so the gospel, by grace through faith alone, was established because of the Antioch Christians who were able to go to Jerusalem and win the day. There's also other evidence of the teaching ministry having impact. For example, in Acts 11.29, the church met for worship right after the teaching ministry is described, and it says they gave a proportional offering, each one giving according to his ability. So we see that very early on, uh, these new Christians were taught how to use money to further kingdom purposes. Then Acts chapter 13 describes another Christian worship service where there was worshiping the Lord and fasting and praying. And you may say, well, of course there was. That's what Christians do. No, remember, there were no Christians in Antioch. They didn't know these things, and they didn't know to do these things. When you read read, uh, the religious practices at Antioch in the first century world, you'll find that they included things like cult prostitution and other kinds of perverted worship. Well, none of those things were found in the early church. Instead, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting and praying. They did those things because they'd been taught to do them. And then Acts 13 records the sending of the first missionaries. And then, if you read on um, in Acts 15, not only did they confront false teaching and establish the nature of the gospel, but at the end of Acts 15, they had already learned how to solve church fellowship problems. They had to sort out the conflict between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark and then reformat the missionary teams and send them out in a fresh way. So, all I'm trying to illustrate is the teaching ministry of antioch was very effective it took brand new converts stabilized them discipled them and then from them saw leaders emerge that were able to do remarkable things leaders were able to emerge that solidified the doctrine of salvation for all time that practiced missions, both in sending missionaries, supporting them financially, praying for them and caring for them, Uh, by meeting for Christian worship that was distinct in its nature and format. Uh, These are all things that the church at Antioch models for us that were a direct result of the teaching ministry. And then, of course, as a result of all that, leaders emerged. Those leaders are mentioned in Acts chapter 13 and then in general as a group in Acts chapter 15. And we see these leaders emerging to accomplish significant things. And it didn't take 10 or 15 years to produce these leaders. They were produced probably in about a year and a half from the time the gospel got to Antioch until it finally uh, had produced leaders who were able to go to Jerusalem and take the stand they did for the gospel. Well, there are several principles that emerge from this. Bible study that have helped me over the years. First, the future church future church leaders are among the unsaved in your community. I call this harvest missiology. People say, well, where are the future leaders going to come from? They're going to come from the harvest. They're going to come from the church, the, the, the unsaved community. They're going to come from people who uh, become Christians and then grow and then mature and then turn into the leaders that you need. Uh, a second uh, principle is that future leaders will emerge from a healthy discipleship program in a church. Now, in our, in our world today, churches talk a great deal about making disciples. But at the same time, they're giving up so much of their teaching ministry responsibilities. Uh, Churches today uh, have home groups, and I know some of those can have a solid Bible study component, but quite often they're fellowship groups or support groups, and while those things are very important, they don't necessarily replace the teaching component that's essential for disciples to be made. And so while churches are on the one hand talking about the importance of disciple making, they're on the other hand minimizing the time they actually invest in teaching ministry. And when I say this, I don't mean just minimizing the time invested in teaching ministry for adults. I mean for preschoolers, children, teenagers, young adults, older adults, the concept of an age-graded Bible study program that simply goes on week by week by week, which is augmented by additional courses on topics or subjects of interest or of need, that seems to have gone by the way in many churches. But good disciple-making churches recognize that that disciple-making is built on teaching, Now, fellowship is an important component, and support is an important component, and community, as it's being defined or described today, is also an important component, but none of those things can replace the central reality of disciple-making, which is developing a sound teaching ministry in a church. Future leaders emerge from a sound teaching ministry, which is the core or the heart of a disciple-making program. Another principle that emerges from the Antioch model is that future church leaders can emerge in any cultural context. Antioch was a secular city, and yet a significant church emerged and significant leaders uh, were found there. You know, I've been watching over the years a number of different models of church ministry and disciple-making and leadership development, and I've really seen that church leaders can emerge in any cultural context. For example, when we moved to Oregon, Portland was known as the most secular city in the United States. It had the lowest percentage of church attenders of any city. And when we went there, we found that to be true, that very few people had any reference to God or the gospel. But we started preaching the gospel. We started developing a teaching ministry. We started through that making disciples. And then those disciples, some of them started emerging as leaders and then at various levels of leadership so that some could take on a little responsibility, but some could take on significant responsibility. And through that process, we saw that even in a secular place like Portland, Oregon, a significant church could be grown. And then, while our seminary has uh, had many uh, opportunities, one of the most unique has been our ministry at San Quentin Prison. For many years, we've operated a training program in San Quentin, which has resulted in uh, multiple students graduating, probably, I would say, around 50 at this point. Every year, we have, we've, we've gone into the prison with the program, and then over time, started, had to go back into the prison for the graduations. Now, many of the men that are incarcerated there are going to be there for a long time. It's not uncommon to have students who have 30-year prison sentences, and even some that have had life sentences. I remember meeting one person in the prison who worked for the prison newspaper. He said, uh... Uh, after graduation, hey, could I interview you for the prison paper? Sure. So after he interviewed me and did a really significant, uh, spectacular job with the interview, I I thought, man, this man man must have been a a trained journalist who somehow got in some trouble and found himself in prison. And so I asked him, I said, look, I I know I'm not supposed to ask you anything about why you're here and I won't, but I would like to ask you something about before you came to prison. uh, Did you learn these journalistic skills before you came to prison? He said, oh no, I I never did any of this. But once I got into prison, I I started going to school and learning and got fascinated by writing and by journalism. And so ultimately that led me to get a job with the the, uh, in-house newspaper that we publish here in the prison. And I said, well, that's amazing. He said, and I don't mind telling you why I'm here. He said, I'm here for murder. He said, I'm on a life sentence. Uh, uh, I've been here for almost 25 years and I've earned a college degree and now I'm earning a seminary degree. And my life's very different, but my, my life will always be here in the prison. Now, that, I tell that story because when we train leaders in the prison, I think sometimes people think, well, we're training people for when they get out, but really that's not the case. Uh, the prisoners call it the incarcerated church, and they have their own understanding of what that looks like. And so they have chapel, and then they have uh, pods of men that meet in every section of the, of the uh, prison for Bible study and for leadership development. They have their own fellowship organization that's built again around where they're assigned to live and to work in the prison. And so the church is the incarcerated church. These men are, uh, some will of course get out, but many of them will never leave the prison. Now one of the interesting things is that as prisoners are transferred from one prison to another for various administrative reasons, um, our program has grown as other prisons have learned about the need and the opportunity. And so uh, they take with them what they've learned and they start making disciples, uh, winning the lost and making disciples and producing leaders in other prisons and then of course they want the training that we can provide. And so I'm simply saying that leaders can emerge in any cultural context. I, I'm familiar with a movement here in Southern California, and particularly in Arizona, called the Set Free Church Movement. Set free churches are made up of people who are coming out of drug and alcohol um, addiction and uh, really are very intense in their ministry. These churches have residential programs where the men come and live. Um, they're, they're in very strict environments. They're on a very, very prescribed process of, of uh, discipleship and development. Uh, very high accountability very high expectations and yet in that context we see men coming to faith in christ disciples being made uh, and then leaders emerging so that most of the pastors in the set free movement have come out of the movement itself so you may be thinking well you don't know how hard it is where i am it's so hard to develop leaders man i know it's hard i don't dismiss that but don't lose heart that god can raise up leaders in every cultural context Uh, He does it in secular cities like Portland, Oregon. He does it in prison systems like San Quentin and the California state system. And he does it even in niche churches where the uh, people that are coming into the church as new converts have incredible baggage and life difficulty they have to overcome. But even in those contexts, leaders can emerge. And then finally, this Antioch model tells me that future leaders can be developed relatively quickly. Now, I know this uh, goes against the grain of what a lot of people think today because they, they I hear people say, well, uh, you need to come into our church and be discipled for months and then we'll move you into another level of training and then you can get some leadership development and three to five years from now you can move into some first leadership roles. You know, that's really not how uh, it developed at Antioch. These people developed into leadership roles very quickly. In fact, probably within just about 18 months to no more than two years, uh, there were people that were of such stature that they accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem uh, to take on the well-established Jerusalem church about this doctrinal matter related to the a doctrine of salvation and so it's possible for leaders to emerge relatively quickly in church ministry organizations, churches and ministry organizations now you might say well does that mean a new convert can become a pastor not necessarily but why does a person have to go from new convert to pastor why can't they go from new convert to uh, teaching a small group of people in a discipleship program uh, that that they only have to have just maybe three months of training to help these new converts move along and then from that they can progress to substitute teaching or to being an assistant in a ministry leadership role, and then they can be mentored in that role, and then maybe some more months go by, and they can be field tested and coached in another leadership role. What I'm saying is that uh, leadership development involves putting people at – various levels of leadership, giving them tastes of leadership opportunity, letting them test what they're learning and learn by doing and then grow to greater leadership responsibility. And so when I say that leaders can be developed relatively quickly, what I mean is that you can start the process of moving people along in leadership development fairly early in their discipleship process as convert, as new as new Christians. And so when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, think in terms of moving them quickly to the next level and then as soon as they can be pushed to another level and then another level so that their leadership stature and capacity continues to develop over time. Well, what I've tried to establish today, first of all, is where do leaders come from? Uh, they come from the, among the unsaved who are converts, who are then disciples, who are then leaders. And so if you want more leaders, The solution is not putting more pressure on the converts who are already sitting in front of you in your pews and trying to get them raised up to do even more. No, the solution is win more people to faith in Jesus Christ, those converts then can become disciples who then can become more leaders. The biblical model for this is the church in Antioch, and I would encourage you to uh, read through Acts chapters 11, 13, 15, and maybe Galatians chapter 2, and if you want to, get the book, The Case for Antioch, that I've written that has a significant uh, section in it about disciple-making and what that looks like, particularly in a new church plant situation like Antioch, but also drawing, the, moving those principles over into existing churches as well. So that's part one of developing leaders for your church or your ministry organization. Uh, Next week, we'll pick up on part two for the podcast and continue learning about this important issue. Hey, it's a new year. Uh, It's time to get off to a great start. So lead on.